0: why is america so divided and what can we do about it that's what we're talking about on the cozy robot show the cozy robot show well hi cozy robots i'm mike mccarg and this is a show about empathetic skepticism empathetic because our feelings matter and understanding the feelings of other people matters too when we understand all feelings are valid every person's feelings are valid every time we can relate to each other more easily and create a world we'd all like to live in together and skepticism because our feelings and our thoughts are often manipulated by media powers by social movements oh gosh even by advertisers And skepticism helps us step back and think critically about the information that we see all around us in the world. And finally, because it's so much in the news and I've gotten so many questions about it, I do want to let you know that they have announced the the first efficacy numbers for a COVID-19. This one coming from Pfizer, showing that in preliminary interim results, their COVID-19 vaccine is about 90% effective, which is a fantastic. Fantastic data point, but it's going to be some time until that actually has any impact on our lives. So this is this is light over the horizon. But for now, the most important thing is to continue to socially distance, wash your hands uh, and take other guidelines as necessary to keep yourself safe and people in your life safe as well. But tonight's show is not about COVID-19. Tonight's show is about the 2020 U.S. presidential election and the backdrop to that, which is the fact that the United States is an incredibly divided country because, as I record this, ballots are still being counted, and they should all be counted. It doesn't matter who's ahead or behind in a given state in any race. All ballots should be counted. When we talk about being manipulated, the word Illegal ballot is one of those manipulating terms that doesn't actually mean anything significant. It's designed to cause us to have doubts where we should not have any. But ballots are still being counted, and they should all be counted. Whether that means my candidate wins or loses, all ballots should be counted. That's a foundational premise in any democracy. And the race has been called, and it, since the race has been called via media projections, I want to say something explicit. The media can't and should not choose who wins presidential elections, right? Predictions like this, projections based on data, really have no legal weight, and they should not. They're a way for the population to understand what happened in an election, but they are not the final result. These These uh, projections have been wrong in the past. They will be wrong again in the future. And we'll talk more about this in the show. But as it stands now, it is overwhelmingly likely, all but certain, in fact, that Joe Biden will be the president-elect of the United States. That's why media companies, after a great deal of uncertainty and fear, called the race for Joe Biden. The math adds up. Now, control of the Senate in the United States is still up in the air. It could go either way. It comes down to two runoff races in Georgia. I would frankly give Republicans the advantage here, more likely to control the Senate than not, based on Georgia's electoral makeup. Although, you know, organizers and activists in Georgia have been doing amazing work, so we'll see. The House of Representatives, it's going to remain under Democratic control. That's a projection. That is uh, now less of a projection. And more, enough races have all their ballots in that we're sure. But we also know that the Democratic margin of control in the House is going to be diminished, and perhaps significantly so. State houses, state legislatures, you know— they're projected to be basically unchanged, very different than what we expected before the race, offering Republicans a nationwide advantage in this critical year of redistricting. And then ballot propositions were all over the map. You know, voters went both for Donald Trump in Florida and for an increased minimum wage, while voters in my state of California voted for Joe Biden, yes, but against Affirmative action and state resources. So the state I come from, Florida, voted for Trump and an increased minimum wage, a conservative, frankly, nationalist president, and a, a very progressive policy point. While supposedly progressive voters in California voted for Joe Biden in record numbers. But against affirmative action, one of the most basic notions that progressives hold dear. Isn't that interesting? Well, narratives are starting to form based on vote totals and exit polls and the data we have. And I would just caution you to hold these loosely. I'm actually not going to start forming narratives about 2020 in this series. So I encourage you, no matter what pundit, no matter what pollster is telling you based on the narratives from the data, understand the data we have is preliminary at best and understanding how to weigh the data based on the way the pandemic caused a massive shift away from in-person voting and toward absentee and mail-in voting, that's still being worked out. We may never have a totally firm grasp on what happened in 2020. Now, with that said, these narratives and projections, well, they are important. When uh, statisticians look at a combination of what votes are in, what votes are left to count— the ratio of ballots in different geographic areas and their exit polling, they can build models that give them a high degree of certainty about which way a race will go when all the ballots are counted. And historically, by norm and not by law, when a race is definitively called by the media, the losing candidate often concedes which basically accelerates the process of transferring their office to the victor if they're the incumbent. Um, that's, that's a norm. That's not a law. Again, the media doesn't call results of an election. And because of that, Donald Trump and his administration it has every legal right to challenge these results in court. Every legal right. Now, if Donald Trump were to empower his Justice Department— uh, to act in partisan ways, that would be beyond his rights. Uh, if Donald Trump were to lobby for state legislators to override their popular vote tallies by selecting faithless electors, that would be out of his legal right. But challenging the results as long as Donald Trump would like to is totally Within his rights. But it is irresponsible for Trump and the Trump campaign to, one, describe the process of counting votes as stealing an election that is irresponsible and dangerous, as it is, as we're seeing consistently in their talking points, claiming over and over that they won the election when they have not. They're not projected to win it. Uh, It would be it would require multiple, very unlikely events to unfold in multiple states for Donald Trump to end up winning the electoral college fairly and democratically. And I also want to point out, as we complain about the delays in vote counting, many of the delays we're seeing in key swing states are because GOP-controlled state legislatures set policies preventing states from counting ballots ahead of time if they were early votes or mail-in votes. So it's like, don't count ahead of time. But if it takes too long to count, these ballots don't count. These state legislatures knew the mail-in vote would be overwhelmingly Democratic. They knew the president would demonize the mail-in vote process altogether. And so this appears to be a strategy to intentionally discount Democratic votes. Friends, that is voter suppression. That's dangerous. Because the pandemic changed everything. More people should have mail-in voted than they did as we can see by our exploding case counts and our rising hospitalizations and deaths. But all that said, here is where we must begin together tonight. As I record this, over 76 million people cast their vote for Joe Biden to be the president of the United States and Kamala Harris to be the vice president, the first woman and the first person of color to hold that office. 76 million people. No presidential ticket has ever received that many votes. And over 71 million people voted for Donald Trump for president and Mike Mike Pence for vice president. 71 million. That would have won any prior electoral race. Good news. We had record turnout. Bad news. For those of us who think that Donald Trump is a dangerous white nationalist, a stoker of racist tensions, a a stoker of uh, sexism, there was no stunning repudiation of his policies. 71 million people looked at the four-year legacy of Donald Trump and says, four more years. So no matter what other stories we begin to tell about this election, And the parties are fighting amongst themselves and with each other about what's the right strategy to win races in this country. We have to understand that our country is on the verge of being ungovernable. We view each other with fear and suspicion. But this is important, friends. We still have common interests, all of us. And what I want to tell you over these series of podcasts and videos, is that we are in a system that was accidentally and intentionally designed to keep us from seeing our common interests and instead focus on the things that we disagree about. Because perhaps the most key insight of all for me is this. Every state in the United States is a purple state. The maps where we see red states and blue states are not accurate. When contributing to the popular vote and not the Electoral College, the state of California is usually in the top three states for Republicans. The opposite is true for Texas. One of the highest amounts of popular vote contributions for Democrats comes from the state of Texas. There is no state in the country that is red or blue, it doesn't exist. It's a myth created by our system and the math that undergirds it. So why do we keep having these red versus blue Super Bowls? Where It's like, there's only two options. There's only two kind of states and which kind of state are you gonna be? That erases the nuance of what is actually happening in our country. I live in one of the most liberal cities in the United States, in Los Angeles. And there are millions and millions and millions of Republicans here. Trump got millions of votes in Los Angeles County. So we're going to talk about several things in this little series, but the first one I'd like to talk with you about is the Electoral College, how we got here. We cannot understand how we got here without understanding the history of this particular institution. And what I'm about to say is bitter medicine. It's going to be hard to hear. But America was not designed to be an inclusive democracy. It just wasn't. Our founders wanted representation for white landowners that was more extensive than they had under a monarchy, especially being colonists in the colony of a monarchist state. And if you look at who those 13 colonies were, you would recognize the names. They're states today, but if you look at a map, the borders don't look anything like those states look today. It was a very different country. And those colonies and the founders of this nation who lived among them were split on a lot of things. But the most divisive issue of their day was, in fact, the issue of slavery. This is just historical fact. And the Electoral College is part of this complex legacy of 13 colonies trying to do an experiment in self-governance. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, I'd like to tell you about our sponsors. The Cozy Robot Show would be impossible without the generous support of our sponsors. And we've got a brand new one today. That's NordVPN. You know, I have a background, believe it or not, in information technology and digital security practices, and I am paranoid because the internet is a dangerous place. Not only are there hackers and bad actors who want to get your personal data, who want to blackmail you, who want to put ransomware on your computer, but there's also advertising companies that are absolutely crazy creepy in the degree to which they will monitor you to give you a freaky personalized ad, and I don't trust either of those groups. So I always use a personal VPN to increase my security on the internet, especially when I'm traveling. And NordVPN is simply one of the best VPN providers in the world. They've got over 5,000 servers in over 59 countries. They can let you unlock Netflix no matter where you're traveling. They've got a CyberSec suite that acts as an ad blocker. And they create a faster connection with their proprietary technology, NordLynx. They don't do any data logging. That's really important. And they allow up to six simultaneous connections from whatever kind of device you may have, including Windows, macOS, Linux, iOS, and Android, offering unlimited bandwidth, including support for P2P sharing applications NordvPn is a wonderful service trusted by millions and you can get 60% off nordvpn today that's only 371 a month plus you get an additional month free by going to nordvpn.com cozy robot or you can just use the coupon code cozy robot now pay attention most of our uh, codes are cozy robots plural but in this case it's cozy robot singular nordvpn.com slash cozy robot to get started. Our other sponsor this week is my beloved friends over at BetterHelp. This is an online counseling service used by each and every member of my family today. We are four of over 1 million people who've signed up to use the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support. BetterHelp connects you with licensed Professional counselors with specializations in anxiety, stress, depression, sleeping, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, self-esteem, grief, LGBT matters. Whatever you're facing, they have a counselor who's specialized in working with you to work through it. It's perfectly adapted for this era of social distancing because you connect with your your counselor in a convenient and private way via text, chat, video calls phone calls, whatever you prefer, they help you find a therapist. That's maybe my favorite part. You fill out a questionnaire, and the experts there will find a counselor that fits your needs. And if there's not a fit, they'll help you find a new counselor for no additional charge. So you can get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash Cozy Robots. That's BetterHelp.com slash Cozy Robots. So how in the world did we get the Electoral College in the first place? Because as normal as it seems to us in the United States, it is strange globally. You know, every other democracy in the world that elects directly their uh, chief executive, they do it by the popular vote or, you know, in some parliamentary democracies, Whoever gets the most votes in the parliament, whatever party holds the parliament, then appoints a prime minister. Nobody else has this weird, single-use electoral body. And let's be real. the, The president of the United States is an abnormally powerful chief executive. Most countries' presidents or prime ministers have many more constraints on their power and authority. So Why is it we've created both an extremely powerful chief executive that's getting more powerful over time, who's elected via the Electoral College? Well, believe it or not, one of the most controversial issues back in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention was how on earth to elect the president. No one had had a president before. It was a new office and elected chief executive. Pretty wild. They didn't know how to do it. And they had no template to work off. At the time, no country directly elected their chief executive. Some of the founders wanted Congress to pick the president, being distrustful of the voting populace. But others thought, you know, if we let the Congress pick the president, there's going to be a chummy and potentially corrupt partnership between the president and the Congress that might subvert the will of the people. But others thought, and this is true, the electorate couldn't be trusted to pick the, inf- the president because they didn't have enough information. Remember, for them, the electorate was white land-owning men. <laughs> so already, most people in America were excluded from the process, but even among those people, many of the founders didn't trust that group to vote for the president. They feared, and this is a, d- a direct quote, a democratic mob. We still talk about that today. So these this faction was afraid that a populace would be too powerful for the other branches of government to contend with. Coming in, uh, r- getting the populace in a, a, an uproar, it would be impossible to govern. Hmm. They were struggling with populism in 1787, and so this is where the notion of a temporary body formed to elect the president whose composition was based off the two chambers of Congress. This is where that came from. And as they started to lay out an electoral college and figure out how representation would work in the Congress, the conflict between the northern and southern states began immediately. Because the northern colonies wanted only free people to be able to vote and only free people to count towards representation in Congress. Now, southern colonies, whose total population was 40% enslaved people, 4 in 10 people in the southern states were enslaved. So they wanted all people to count towards representation, including enslaved people, but they only wanted free people to be able to vote. Now, make no mistake here. We have a lot of mythology about the founders of this nation. We tend to revere them, and they did a lot of things well. But we delude ourselves when we deny that the founders of the United States understood that slavery was morally wrong. Thomas Jefferson, who was a slaver owning more than 600 slaves, was writing a letter to Edward Rutledge, in 1787, the same year of the Constitutional Congress, and he wrote these words, I congratulate you, my dear friend, on the law of your state for suspending the importation of slaves, and for the glory you have justly acquired by endeavoring to prevent it forever. This abomination must have an end, and there is a superior bench reserved in heaven for those who hasten it. Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner, understood the institution of slavery was morally bankrupt, and you can find words from almost all of America's founders to similar effects. Which is strange for a group whom a majority of owned human beings. There's no way around it there is a deeply racist legacy for the electoral college because the southern states feared the abolishment of slavery they thought it would be economically ruinous to them and so months of debate dragged on and demoralized everyone involved and they ended up arriving at two compromises that were almost universally hated by the very people who wrote them, but were also viewed as the only viable path forward. The first compromise was the Electoral College. In it, each state would get electors equal to their House delegation, that's their total number of representatives in the House of Representatives, plus their senators, so representatives plus two. The states constitutionally administer their own elections and have vast latitude in how the electors themselves are selected. Many states from much of America's history didn't have a popular vote to determine the president. The second compromise is one of the great stains on America's self-professed moral high ground in the world, and it's the three-fifths compromise. The three-fifths compromise said that each slave would count as three-fifths of one person for the sake of representation but would not be given freedom nor the right to vote. By the way, that compromise was put forward by the northern states as an attempt to keep the process moving. So when faced with belief that slavery was a completely immoral institution, they wanted instead to rush forward towards a governable nation, including the southern colonies. When people say the Electoral College carries a legacy of racism. That statement is just historical fact. There's no way around it. Even the founders who created the Electoral College and the Three-Fifths Compromise knew these were racist institutions, and they did not pretend otherwise. Remember, the Electoral College has been unpopular since the day it was first written down and has never, not once, enjoyed majority support from Americans, never once. So many of our founders owned slaves, even the ones who professed that slavery was wrong. And think about the fact for a second that the southern colonies were 40% enslaved people. Where did all of those millions of enslaved people go? Well, they stayed here. In the United States, their descendants are still here. After emancipation, many moved across the country into the Midwest, into the Northeast. Others stayed where they were. Black Americans, African Americans are the descendants of slaves. And how do you think they feel? When we venerate the Electoral College as some great innovation in democracy, an institution explicitly architected to protect the right of my descendants to own their descendants. You see, friends, since its founding, America has not been some great ongoing civil discourse that has gradually agreed to grant more and more people Basic rights, logical discourse is not how change has happened. If you think it is, go read your history. You are wrong. Progress in this country has only come when people who have faced unimaginable oppression at the hands of both our government and our majority populace, fought and won their rights against a system that directly benefited from their oppression. Enslaved people were continuously enslaved by people who understood it was wrong because of the dollar. Their output created so much wealth. Wealth that has been passed down generation by generation in the United States. Native people, likewise, after unimaginable difficulty, after genocide, have fought and organized for basic rights and recognition. Disabled people, women, LGBTQ people, even white non-landowners. All of these groups have had to fight for their right, for representation, for suffrage, for the American promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And things have absolutely gotten better in America from that process. They truly have. But they are better because people fought like hell to increase their rights to get a seat at the table of American democracy. And although we don't have time to talk about it in this video, it's true that every time, I mean every time, we've expanded basic rights for a group of people in this country, there has been an inevitable backlash that follows and a lasting resentment from groups that once held power alone, but now have to share it. Look. I get it. I know admitting and naming and talking about America's racist, sexist, and oppressive history is a non-starter for many of us. Many people listening or watching right now simply don't want to talk about it. They feel implicated when we talk about white supremacy. And I understand that. That was true of me at one time as well. Now, I think that's completely unfair to the people impacted By our politics by saying we don't want to be political. But in this series of videos, I don't want to tell you why you should care about what is happening to someone else. What I'd like for us to explore together is why you should care about what is happening to you, the ways that you and I alike are manipulated and used by these systems, where the things we care about most go ignored by our elected leaders and what we can do to fight back. Because you and I, friend, don't benefit from two opposing halves of the United States being angry at each other, being afraid of each other, and being polarized to the detriment of our collective mental health and quality of our daily living. We have been conscripted into fighting someone else's battle, and we are all losing together. Now, we're going to talk about this more In a later segment. But the Electoral College didn't even play out the way the founders intended. You know, they had no map as they tried an American experiment. They did some things incredibly well. But if you're an originalist, reading the founders' own words will tell you just how far we are today from what they intended. And we'll look at that together in a future video. Uh, But for now, we want to shift gears and uh, take some questions from our audience all right so as we were recording we got some questions coming in from the audience uh colby knight comedy asks hey mike what specifically would need to happen for the electoral college to be changed or abolished in the first place colby that's a great question because after all as i mentioned earlier the Electoral College has never had majority support in the United States. It's never crossed that critical 51% approval rating. Uh, if it were a political party or a president, it uh, its its career prospects would be really bad. <laughs> so, how's it stick around? Well, the Electoral College is actually enshrined in the Constitution. Ooh, so that's a big lift. How do we get rid or change things that are in the Constitution themselves? We can't pass a law because if we pass a law that is unconstitutional, the Supreme Court will throw it out, rightfully so in our legal system. So that would mean we would need to instead amend the Constitution. And amending the Constitution is a big deal. I don't actually think you could pass a constitutional amendment about literally anything today. Here's why. You've not only got to pass— both houses of Congress with veto-proof majorities, you also have to get a majority of voters in three-quarters of U.S. states to also ratify that amendment. That's an incredibly high bar, which means if we want to do it properly, uh, we would need years and years and years and years of advocacy in a bipartisan way to get people to understand why the Electoral College is bad. And right now, a lot of Republicans like the Electoral College because it allows them to lose the popular vote and win the presidency. And I would remind you, if you're a Republican and you're like, well, right now, the Electoral College protects us, that has not always been true. What states are swing states change? Population distributions change. Don't forget that Ronald Reagan came from California. There can come a day when the Electoral College hurts your party instead of benefiting it. But setting that aside, I just don't think we're anywhere near being able to amend the Constitution uh, to deal you know, with the Electoral College. So instead, there's something called the National Popular Vote Compact that states join on a state-by-state basis, and it says basically this. Once enough states join this compact, that the total compact has 270 or more electoral college votes, we will all give our electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. It would bypass the electoral college by creating a state compact. Now, that one also might be legally tricky. States are given the right to decide how their electors are uh, apportioned, but this could be challenged on the basis of of effectively trying to undermine a constitutional mechanism, so it could go either way in the courts. Uh, but we we're kind of we need more states to join it anyway. There's a lot of blue states and a few swing states. We need more swing states and some red states to get that vote compact up to 270. At which point, we can find out if it would work or not. But the electoral college is hard to get rid of, Colby, because it is so deeply embedded in our constitution and our existing. Process. Great question. Thank you. Uh, let's see. we got a question here from Terry Mullen, who says, Can psychology help us move things like this along faster? I'm interested in defunding the police, but everyone thinks I'm a crazy radical. Well, you know, when we look at uh, public opinion, uh, public opinion towards Black Lives Matter, uh, really, really, really improved dramatically this year, as we saw all the police brutality. Uh, But defunding the police remains a very unpopular notion overall with American voters. But we get too focused on national moves, too focused on the presidency in this country, because Most of the things that impact your life policy-wise happen at the local and state level, not the federal level. So, if you care about criminal justice reform and police behaviors, you should be following the races for your state's attorney general, for district attorneys, for judges, for sheriffs, for city councils, anywhere. You need to learn about your local city government and figure out who has administrative and legislative authority over the police force and the sheriff's office. And then you need to get involved in the primary election cycle. Primary voters in local elections have incredible power. Uh, Right here in Glendale, California, where I vote, I had conversations with so many uh people on the ballot and i had it by picking up the phone and calling them and they answered and we talked one-on-one and i asked them about policies and i told them what was important to me and i let them know the things i would be holding them accountable for and i personally lobby friends and family who live in the area about who said what when i called them i try to create voter guides. I I am very active in local politics. I am more active in local politics than I am at any other political level because I do care about radical police and criminal justice reform. And that starts at home. And so the psychology there, if, if defund the police triggers people, don't say it. Just say, do you think it's fair? the rate at which black Americans are incarcerated versus white Americans. Do you think it's fair the number of police-involved shootings that happen with black Americans versus white Americans? People will say no, most people. Some people will have a lot of excuses, but most people will say no. And so then we talk about candidates who will help or who won't and why, right? By focusing local, that increases the amount of control. We not only feel the amount of control and influence that we actually have. What a great question, Terry. Thank you. Well, we'll have more podcasts. We'll have more videos to talk about our divided nation and what we can do about it. I hope you've enjoyed this first, which was the history of the Electoral College. Now, don't forget, you can like and subscribe on YouTube for the show to see it live. You can follow on any social channels. Um, And, of course, you can always listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which the data tells us is what most of you are doing today, although more and more people every week are joining us for the video format of the show. And, of course, a shout-out if you'd like to be a part of our after parties, you can do that by visiting CozyRobots.com. Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. I'd like to thank everyone involved. That includes each and every one of you, Cozy Robots, who make this show possible. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmisano, and Greg Nordine. The show's music is written and recorded by Madison and Macy McCarg. Our social media manager is Grace Fawn. Production support by Andrew Galucki. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Designed by Sydney Smith, motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield, set design by Jesse Lane Interiors, wardrobe stylists, craft services, and general helper and tester is my wife, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us, and I can't wait to talk with you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.